more of a flurry of activity here among animals as they get ready for winter. And, and it, it doesn't matter what road you drive on, you'll see something on the side of the road. And what's gross is when, you know, nobody kicks it into the ditch and it just sits there and it just decays. And um, it's a disgusting thing. This morning, I want us to look in Micah chapter 7, verses 1 through 6 to begin with. And we're going to see a certain sense of how sin is a decaying force in our lives. In Micah chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, Micah is talking about the people of Israel who have uh, just given themselves over to sin. And he says in Micah 7, Woe is me, he starts off. And he gives us a glimpse into the nature of sin. He says, Woe is me, for I'm, I'm, I am as when they have gathered the summer fruits and the great gleanings of the vintage, there is no cluster to eat. My soul desired the first ripe fruit. The good man is perished out of the earth, and there is none upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with a net. This morning, we're going to look and see, first of all, in this passage, uh, sin decays. Man's sin decays. When something decays, it doesn't happen all at once, does it? It's a process. And sin is like a cancer. It eats away. It decays. It rots. In this passage, I think you can see, first of all, that under sin decays is that there is an abundance of sinners. That sinners are abundant. The picture here is is like, have you ever walked into the buffet after the lunch crowd got through? And there was very little left to go picking through? Maybe you've been to one of the Chinese buffets. And um, you're eager to eat. You got there a little late after the lunch rush hour. And you go there and there's just a few little pieces of this. There's kind of the rice that's in the bottom of the, of the, of the, of the pan. Um, uh, there's maybe, you know, one of the broken wontons. And, uh, and Mike is saying, I walked into the vineyard. I want to pick some good grapes. But it's after harvest. I was hoping I could find one little cluster left. And he says, I walk in. And there's nothing left to pick. Nothing. Like maybe some of you have planted sweet corn in your gardens, right? And you have been watching it, and you, are, you say to yourself, it's ready tomorrow, I'm going to pick it. I'm going to have some with butter and salt for supper, and when you go out the next day, it's all knocked down by raccoons, and it's a mess. You know that feeling of bitterness there, don't you? You've been cheated. I'm looking forward to this, and then it's gone. Well, in this passage here, the vineyard is Israel. And all that is left in this vineyard is not good fruit. All that is left is the shriveled stuff that looks like raisins now. All that is left is the spoiled fruit, the stuff the animals got. And so what is missing is the good fruit, the righteous ones, the faithful called the upright persons, the good man. And Micah says, I'm going in there looking for good fruit and I find nothing. And there is an abundance of sinners, but the righteous are an endangered species, virtually extinct. 
Micah says that vineyard that was planted by the master uh, and, and the nation of Israel uh, was grown to intentionally produce fruit that reflects the master. And what is there in that vineyard is nothing good. Diseased fruit, pest eaten, ruined, no righteous fruit. There's no one abiding in the true vine and bearing the fruit he's designed and intended that the master enjoys feasting on. And what we see here in these first couple verses is that sinners are abundant. And we know that, don't we? It's true in our day and age, isn't it? All have sinned. Sin is rampant. We're not exempt from that. The second thing you can see here in the decay of sin is that these sinners are all in. They are abundant and they are all in. What do I mean by that? Well, verse the end of verse 2 says, They all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with a net. That they may do evil with both hands earnestly. The prince asketh and the judge asketh for a reward. And the great man he uttereth his mischievous desire. So they wrap it up. He says in verse 4, The best of them is as a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of thy visitation, or the, of thy watchman, and thy visitation cometh, now shall be their perplexity. Notice the devotion here of these evil men to their evil skill. They are sinister. They are deadly. And their practices, he says, they do with both hands earnestly. They're all in. They have devoted their energy to sin. Micah is saying, you do one thing well, and that thing you do well is you sin. Very well. They are all in. He's talking about in the, in the following verses here about the magistrates, the lawyers, the governments that cover their bases so there's no loopholes and, 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 and their net is, 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 is evenly stretched out and no one escapes their unjust rulings and their fleecings. They're accepting bribes. They are, are conspiring together to wring more money out of their own people and, and wealth. And the word that's, using, that's used to describe these high-ranking officials at the end of verse 3 translated as mischievous desire. He uttereth his mischievous desire. Is a word that in Hebrew means an inner root of evil. A desire not ordered by God. And see how it's expressed. They're expressed in deceitful lies, twisting, taking advantage of others' misfortunes. They are, uh, uh, and, and the word is usually used of those who take what is right and pervert or twist it for their evil desires. And Micah says that the best of them, the most righteous of all of them, if there was one, is like a patch of briars. When I was a kid, my dad used to take me small game hunting, and we'd go for pheasant, and we'd go for rabbits in Connecticut, and we didn't have a dog like Steve Luce has, and so I was the dog. Steve Luce's dogs are amazing. They are amazing rabbit hunters, right, Braden? They they are specially trained, and they can they they get Steve always comes home with rabbits, Um, but I was the rabbit. And Dad would say, "Why don't you you know go walk through that patch there and see if you can scare anything up, right?" So I would kind of push aside the briars and the patches there, and 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 we once in a while would find something, um, but most of the time we really wouldn't find much there in those in those briars. Those those uh, I didn't have the sense of smell like a beagle did. I couldn't do what a beagle did, and really the end result would be I'd be all scratched up. 
when you walk through briars, you come out shredded. <clears throat> your clothes are shredded. You leave patches of fabric there in the briars. You've you got scratches on your hands. And what Micah is saying here about these, these, these people here who are all in, it says, you're obstructing justice. You're like a briar patch in front of justice. Uh, you, you tangle the laws. You tear up the flesh of anyone trying to break through. And you can see very clearly that one of the marks of sin is a, is a devoted passion to it. A desire for it. Sinners are abundant in this passage. And sinners are all in, devoted, devoted to it. But look what he says at the end of first, uh, verse 4. Look what he says at the end of verse 4. The day of thy watchman and thy visitation cometh. Now shall be their perplexity. What's he talking about? Well, God had graciously, mercifully, He had given them sentinels. He had given them watchmen. He had given them guardians called prophets. Over and over again. Who warned them and, 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 and pleaded with them and told, and told them, and, uh, them of the approaching danger if they continued in these ways. But they paid no attention. So there would be a day of visitation. God would visit them. And this visit is going to result in perplexity and panic when God visits them in the form of the Assyrian and the Babylonian Empire. You know what it tells us? We looked at last week. That sin has a payday. And sin, sin is accounted for. Sin always has a payday. It will always, always promise wonderful things, but it will never deliver. And that bill is coming in the mailbox of the sinner. Sinners are accounted for. There is an abundance of sinners. They are devoted in in sin. But sinners will be called to pay for their sin. Look how some of this sin is is displayed here. The fourth thing we see in verses 1 through 6 are these sinners are in attack mode. Trust ye not in a friend, put ye not confidence in a guide. Keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom, your wife. For the son dishonoreth the father, the daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the enemies of his own house. What he's saying is that sin rips the very fabric of society apart. It rips relationships apart. What should be a society's most close and most trusted relationships, friends and family, absolutely unravels because of sin. Even the most foundational unit of society, the family, will be torn apart because of the distrust of each other and the consequences of their selfish living. And so when God's rod comes and punishment through the Assyrians and the Babylonians, it's just going to increase the way that sin that was lying latent in their hearts, that selfishness is going to increase even all the way down into the very family structures, their very homes. Sin always has at its root self-preservation instead of self-forgetfulness. Sin's ultimate loyalty is always to self. And make no mistake about it. 
And so you can see here under this heading of man's sin decays that the exceeding sinfulness of sin. But let me tell you, Jesus delivers. Look at the answer Micah holds out to the people trapped in their sin. Savior delivers. Verse 7. He talked about the nature of, who, of, of sin in verses 1 through 6. Now the nature of who God is as the Savior. Therefore, I will look unto the Lord, unto Yahweh. It's in capital letters. Many times we say Jehovah. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. You know what Micah is saying there? He's saying that God is enough. God is enough. And that one who will deliver them will be their Messiah. Say the Lord Jesus is enough. The Lord Jesus alone is worth looking unto for rescue. And Micah says he's going to direct his eyes. He's not going to gaze on the circumstances. He's going to gaze on his only hope in life and death. And that word look translated uh, uh, um, can be translated watch. It means to look or wait expectantly. It's a used in 1 Samuel of the blind um, priest Eli, who is waiting for news of the battle as the Ark of the Covenant and the Philistines has been uh, eventually been, be, being taken. He's waiting for news. He's waiting expectantly. It's the same word used in verse 4 for, um, the, for the watchman. In this passage. And so the idea here is a godly man, Micah, is going to look expectantly for God. In those days, they would have watchmen on the city walls to warn of approaching enemies that surround them. Those watchmen, if they were doing their job well, would march around the perimeter of those walls looking for anything, any sound, any noise, any shadow. And the idea here is that Micah is going to be like that watchman. He's going to look for any sign of God's work. He's looking for every evidence of God's working. And you can see why he would do that in these dark times. I don't know what your dark times are, but do you see evidence of God working? Is your heart, is your soul looking expectantly for God to work? Do you see His grace? Do you see His, His, His power? Do you see Himself manifested? And the godly man is looking for evidence of God's work. But friends, if we're closing our eyes to the working of God, no matter how small that evidence might be, we're opening a door to despair and darkness. So, Jesus is enough. He, is alone, he alone is worth looking unto for rescue. And Micah is going to direct his eyes to the triune God. I will look unto the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God. But then he says, I will wait for the God of my salvation. He alone is worth waiting for rescue. Michael will position himself. He will poise himself in the confident expectation of God's promises. The promises God made to Israel that he will do no matter what. Micah is taking his feet and he's setting them on them. He is waiting for the Lord. He 
alone is worth waiting for rescue. And thirdly, Micah says, my God will hear me. God alone, ultimately, is worth speaking to for rescue. If God would hear Micah, that means Micah was communicating to God. Micah knows that turning to Christ alone for his hope, turning to the triune God of Israel, would be met with a kiss of a listening ear that would be attached to the rescuing arm that would save him. So Micah understands that his Messiah is enough. The Savior delivers. And a dark distress that he's talked about in verses 1 through 6 will meet the rays of heavenly hope. But look what Micah says in verses 8 and 9. Now this is Lady Jerusalem speaking. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy, when I fall. I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me. He will bring me forth to the light and I shall behold his righteousness. Then she that is mine enemy shall see it and shame shall cover her which said unto me, Where is the Lord thy God? Mine eyes shall behold her. Now shall she be trodden down as the mire of the streets. Now the speaker is changed. This is Lady Jerusalem speaking. And Nineveh and Babylon, when they come down and God uses them to punish Israel, God says they are not to gloat when they bring Israel down because He will cause her to rise again. Notice the order, though, of her rise. It begins with brokenness and the transparency before God. Lady Jerusalem says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord. I rightly deserve this. There's a brokenness. There's a transparency. There's confession. There's see, confession is saying the same about my sin as God sees it. That's confession. Not only uh, um, uh, saying the same thing about uh, our sin as God sees it, but saying the same thing about anything as God sees it. That's our, our confession. When we, when we have confessions of faith, we're saying this is, this is what the Bible says. This is how God sees it. And notice her her transparency and brokenness. I deserve this. I have sinned against him. He will plead my cause and, and execute judgment or justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light and I shall behold his righteousness. Do you see a change here compared to verses 1 through 6 in Israel and Jerusalem? She is brought low. She is fallen. She will be in the dungeon. And then that iron door, like Charles Wesley writes about, ain't going to be that dungeon door swings open because she recognizes her sin. She has seen uh, what it is against Yahweh. She states she deserves the wrath of God, and she knows He will act in her behalf. And she sees His salvation, and she receives His warm embrace. And the Lord will remove her sin, and the Lord will dress. His adulterous, repentant wife in his own robes. And in answer to the pagan army's questions to Israel, as they put down Israel, where is the Lord your God? As Israel would be crushed by them, Yahweh will answer. He will answer. Here I am. And the smugness, the cruelty, the cold heart, the mockery of his name, by turning the tables and and change those powerful uh, empires, uh, he 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 will flip the circumstances. 
and those powerful empires that mocked Israel will one day be compared at the end of verse 10 as the muck sticking on the bottom of a boot after taking a walk through muddy streets. Their glory will be reversed. You see here the embrace of the Messiah. He will rescue. He will deliver them. He will gather them. He will turn the tables. He will embrace His people. Israel. Then, look in verse 11 through 13. And the day that thy walls are to be built, and that day shall the decree be far removed. And that day also he shall come even to thee from Assyria, and from the fortified cities, and from the fortress, even to the river, and from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. Notwithstanding, the land shall be desolate because of them that dwell therein for the fruit of their doings. What he's saying is this, when Israel is restored to her land, and that thousand year reign when she arise, arises in verse 8. Her walls will be rebuilt. Her boundaries will be expanded. There is safety and security here. And the Messiah who will reign as the one who encompasses them. And Jesus encompasses. When you are encompassed by the reigning king of Israel... There is no fear, is there? There is security. And that's what he's saying to Israel. Note the presence of this Messiah King here. Who encompasses Israel in these verses. He says Assyria. Assyria will... uh, the enemies of God, verse 12, he says, In that day also he shall come even to thee from Assyria, and from the fortified cities, from the fortress, even to the river, from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. God will make Israel a, people where peop- a place where people will flock to from around the globe, who will go to Jerusalem to learn of and worship the Lord. But, notwithstanding, verse 13, before that glorious time, before that millennial age, however, the nations, because of their sinful deeds, will be judged. The earth will be desolate. But the point of the verses here is that Jesus encompasses Israel. He is their border. He is their wall. And in the remaining verses here, 14 through 17, We will see that his staff decrees. His staff decrees. Look in verse 14. Feed thy people with thy rod. The flock of thine, of thine heritage, which dwell solitary in the wood, in the midst of Carmel, let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. Feed the people with thy rod, he says. This is Micah's prayer to Yahweh. Feed your people with your rod. Staff, the rod, it's a symbol of a, of a shepherd's authority. It's protection, isn't it? The rod and thy staff, they comfort me, the psalmist says. His guidance. And here it means that certain things will follow in the presence of the shepherd who is holding his rod. That phrase there, the flock of thy inheritance, that means a flock of your inheritance. Israel was God's inheritance. And He was going to bring her what she really needed and it would all be found in Him. 
The Lord is my shepherd. Therefore, the result is, I shall not want. I will not lack. His staff decrees, it it, it orders, it gives authority, it protects, it brings. And first of all, it brings fullness. It brings fullness. Verse 14 again. That word dwell there, it has the idea in this setting here of an eternal dwelling. And Micah prays that the Lord will feed the flock and he will let them dwell in the forest in the midst of Carmel. Now that word Carmel, there's a Mount Carmel in Israel, right? Um, And that Carmel there, the word means an orchard. An orchard. And so, it's, it's a, it, he talks about the forest, the wood. He talks about caramel and orchard. So the idea there is like an orchard forest. It kind of sounds like a garden in the Bible, doesn't it? But this dwelling that was brought upon by his staff will feed them on the fullness of all that their God is. He will nourish them in His goodness and mercy. He is their shepherd. They will not lack. He is their bread of life from which they will never hunger again. He is their living water from which they will never thirst again. He is enough. His staff has decreed uh, that, that it will bring fullness as Israel is restored. Not only brings fullness, it brings freedom. It brings freedom. Verse 15. According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto him marvelous things. The staff brings freedom. You can picture it with Moses' staff, can't you? Moses' rod it had taken them from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land in the past. And, and, and it took them through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, into life in him in the promised land. A nation that had been redeemed from bondage, taken from Egypt. He had done amazing things for them because His mercy endures forever. And it would take them again from bondage by the nations that would be uh, that God would use to punish them, that would bring them captive. He would give them freedom again. Brings freedom. But there's another side to this rod, another side to this staff that should be feared. The nations, verse 16 and 17, are going to see. They're going to be confounded at all their might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God in fear because of thee. This same staff that represents God as shepherd, His authority, His provision for them, is to be feared by those who oppose Him. Remember David, he used his, his staff against the lion and the bear. Right? They were, they were um, uh, uh, instruments of protection as well. The sheep. And listen, God will use his staff against Israel's enemies, is what he's saying here. So it brings flight, fear. They're going to run away. You understand that at the name of Jesus... Evil flees. It hides his face. He is higher than anything we can imagine. He is greater than the greatest thing our minds can comprehend. He is the king. He is mighty. He is the champion. 
He is the Almighty God and there is no answer for Him among the enemies of God. And in these times, in this day and age, you might feel like everything is stacked against our God, but I want you to understand that the nations are but as a drop in the bucket. His greatest enemy, the slanderer, the serpent that he kicked out of heaven, is as a worm in his hand. His enemies tremble, they quake, they shiver before him, their mouths will be shut before him in silence. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth, their ears shall be deaf. This God, He reigns, He rules in grace for His people, in hot wrath for His enemies, and who can stand before Him? He is Almighty God. He is unchanging God. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the highly exalted one. He is the, he is the one who Philippians 2 will says will be given a name that is above every name of things in heaven and things under the earth. And that name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is King Jesus. And every knee will bow. Jesus is Lord. People don't make Jesus Lord in a certain sense. Jesus is Lord, whether they make Him Lord or not. He will always be Lord. He's a good Lord. He's not a tame kitten Lord. He is a lion. But he's a lion who is slain as a lamb. You might say, what in the world do I... How does Micah 7, 1 through 17 apply to me? God is God. Sin is sin, isn't it? Jesus has provided. We looked specifically at what he provided for his people in Israel in verses 7 through 13. Do you know what he's provided for you? His very life. Jesus is Lord. Do you love him? Do you? Do you walk with him? Gary wonderfully brought out in the men's breakfast yesterday that our life is in God and our our bodies are be the temple of the Holy Spirit. In other words, we're to show his glory. In John 14, he says, those that love me are not those who just say they do. Those Those who walk in me, obey me. Do you obey Jesus, your good Lord. Are you hidden in Him? His embrace, His encompassing, 
the truth that He's enough, will you be found in Him in that day? Do you know Him? Do you know Him? I know a lot of things about Him. I know this is true. Do you know Him? Do you? Let's pray. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I wonder this morning, does anyone who lift their hand this morning and say, I do not know the Lord Jesus. I do not know Him. I want to. I want to know this great Jesus. I want to be brought into fellowship with the Father. That's you this morning. Say, I don't know Him. Would you lift your hand? This morning, all of us then are professing that we know the Lord Jesus. We're in fellowship with Him. Do you rejoice in Him? Is your joy in Him your strength? Circumstances of life are brutal. Jesus is where fullness of life is found.